Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Stack Overflow podcast. I'm Ryan Donovan. I run the blog here at Stack Overflow. This is a place to uh, talk all things technology and programming. Today, I'm joined by uh, my co-host, Sayora Ford. Hi, everyone. You're a little bit uh, under the weather. Yeah, COVID is still a thing for too many of us, unfortunately. But thankfully, this time around, it's pretty mild. Hopefully, uh, you'll be you'll be back on camera soon enough. <laughs> we have a special guest today, Spencer Kimball. He's the CEO of Cockroach Labs. Very excited. He's also the co-creator of GIMP. We're going to talk about where he came from, where he's going, and uh, all things you know, database and cloud. So, hi, Spencer. How are you doing? Hi, Ryan. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be part of the podcast. We're glad to have you here. For a lot of these uh, podcasts, we like to you know, talk to our guests and see where they came from, how they get started in technology, your, your basic origin story. Happy to share it. It goes back a long way, actually. All the way to the TI-99 Texas Instruments. Uh, it was a, a computer that uh, allowed you to store you know, your data on a cassette drive. So you'd use magnetic tapes, but that was my introduction. And that's where I started programming and never really stopped, interestingly, until I became a CEO. And even then it took some time, but uh, these days I don't program much, but I miss it. I also uh, got started on a, a tape drive on a C64. Yeah, the journey's been an interesting one, but I would say that databases uh, is relatively recent over the whole scope of my career. I never was very interested in them and didn't see that they were particularly germane to the things I wanted to do. I was much more interested in graphics, so we could touch on the GIMP. But it wasn't until I really graduated university that databases were a concern. And boy, did they become a concern. So it, they really dominated my professional career. Before that, graphics was my passion. I want to hear more about how they became a concern. Like, I'm interested in you telling that story about, because I'm sure that probably ties into um, eventually your journey starting with Cockroach Labs as well. well. It turns out that databases are fundamental to essentially every product or service or application that isn't a sort of single user. There are some you know, exceptions to it, but you know, as soon as I left university and started working, I, I did a dot-com startup. Uh, immediately, of course, data and actually large amounts of data became a critical aspect of anything that we were trying to build. And it turns out that databases are really hard. It's uh, probably one of the, the harder things to build in, in the world of infrastructure. And it just gets harder. So every time databases create a, a sort of new generation of capabilities, those are quickly used and exploited by the application ecosystem. And then that sort of process suggests the next generation of database capabilities. And I've just seen numerous generations over my career. So let's say I graduated in 97. So it's been you know, a full 25 years. And I've probably, you know, well, in that time, we witnessed, okay, we have to manually shard. We had the open source databases that started to take market share away from the big monolithic commercial databases like Oracle and SQL Server and DB2. And then you had Bigtable and Mongo and all the things that followed in the NoSQL movement. And then there was NewSQL. And meanwhile, now there's serverless databases. And of course, the cloud database is delivered as a service, but the consumption models are all changing. You know, the, the list of features, oh, is it multimodal? Is it like HTAP? So it does transactions and analytics. And there's many, many flavors of databases, probably tens or even hundreds of distinct flavors, and then many, many more different products within each one of those 
sort of subcategories. And it's hard to build them and it's actually hard to consume them. <laughs> so, you know, you can kind of see how since they're, they're central to virtually everything that's built, they are everyone's concerns. And so they quickly became mine. And it's a good thing to have as a concern because the depth to which you can go in terms of finding innovative solutions that add value, you know, it's almost limitless. Yeah, I think it's been really interesting last year actually seeing how much differentiation there is in, in databases between the sort of financial transaction ones, which need the reliability, and then the the sort of real-time data analytics and more. Like It seems that because we have so much data going around, you know, there's more use, more databases to accommodate it. Absolutely. You know, one thing I've realized is in the seven and a half, eight years I've been working on cockroach, actually it's more like eight and a half if you take the, the pre-cockroach labs just project on GitHub, we have seen a pretty large increase in the surface area that cockroach is addressing. I'll just give you two really recent examples. One is absolutely embracing the idea of multi-region. So this could be useful for saying that you want to survive a region disappearing, like the East Coast is offline or something like that. It doesn't happen often, but sometimes that becomes a business requirement if you have very valuable data like financial services. But I think more germane to the larger ecosystem is multi-region in service of customers wherever the customers are. And the smallest startup can have customers in South America or Australia, even though they're based in the United States or Europe, let's say servicing those customers in a way that puts their data close to them, both for data sovereignty, legal jurisdiction reasons, but also, I think, especially if you're trying to build a game or uh, you know, any kind of interactive capability where the real-time like, feel of the application actually matters to the end user, then... Right, something where latency matters. You know, you're dealing with the speed of light. Yeah, so you, know, you have mm-hmm. to think in terms of this application needs to be local to the user. and it's not so hard to do if you're talking about the application logic. You can just run a different application server, run Lambda functions in these different regions. But to have a database that creates a sort of consistent way to access data, no matter where the data happens to be, let's say you have a game and someone in Australia wants to play with someone in the UK, and you kind of want to make that possible. Right. If you try to build a, a completely different service for your Australian users, a different service for your UK users, you create a lot of complexity and then the thing doesn't work well together. Think about Uber, right? You want Uber global. You don't want Uber France and Uber UK and Uber United States, right? That That's a pretty suboptimal way to design and the big companies don't design that way. So that's one that came up really recently. And it's, as you can imagine, a rich vein really to mine. I mean, there's, there's endless amounts that we can do to make that first work and then work better and have less complexity for the application developers. And then also we've been exploring serverless recently. Which is just a, a really fundamental shift in how databases can be consumed that provides incredible efficiencies. What we're already doing is we're providing relational databases to anyone that wants them for free. And it's not just for free for 30 days or even a year. It's free perpetually. And part of what makes that possible is serverless which really does, I mean, I can go into what exactly serverless means in the database context, but I won't use that much time to go into detail. But effectively, (laughs) it allows us to to be more efficient, like a lot more orders of magnitude in some cases. Right. I mean, because there are actually servers behind it, right? There are definitely servers behind it, right? The beauty is that we're abstracting that. Just kind of like if you think about VMware, Mm -hmm. right? They invented, they probably didn't invent Mm -hmm. it, but they they really brought to market the idea of a virtual machine. And 
you know, yeah, there's a physical machine behind it. But now with a virtual machine, you can say, hey, I've got a hundred of these things. It might just be one big physical machine. But now you're parsing that up into a fine enough granularity that it can be used for a hundred different use cases. And they're all sharing the machine before that you would have one use case on that machine. It might be, you know, only using 10% of its capacity or 5% of its capacity. I mean, I think the average in a fleet before VMware was abysmal. I mean, it was like less than 15%. And all of a sudden you can get it up to 80%. So it's this idea of take away the complexity of dealing with with nodes and things like that, with the database, how big the nodes are. It's really just, you get a database, it can be incredibly small and you only get charged for that. could be in the free tier because it's so small, or you start to scale up and whatever you use is what you pay for. And you can get to sort of any size with very fine granularity. So that's a, that's a really great efficiency that's gained that really does allow us to change the nature of consuming databases. Yeah, I'm, I'm interested in hearing more about, I think a lot of companies are addressing issues with latency and a lot of people are trying to solve that through serverless technology. That's like a, a fairly recent change, right? Like that's a fairly recent trend in technology just in general. I want to know how Cockroach Labs got to that point. Like I'm sure you started out and maybe that wasn't the initial problem you were addressing. So how did you, what was the journey like up till now? And then kind of how did you deal with addressing new use cases and new customer needs, just like pivoting to focusing on serverless and things like that? It's a good question. Because we've seen quite a bit of evolution. We started off, as the name would suggest, really thinking about this has to be a very resilient database. And and so we do consensus-based replication, which is pretty common now in the database world. And we also said, you know, this needs to just exploit the resources you give it and get as big as it needs to get. Because use cases need more data. And the ones that can accommodate more data can do more things, right? And they can do them better. And so that's where everything's moving. And wow, we've definitely seen that come to pass. But you start to build those resilience and the scale for your end users and you get committed users that are doing cool things and you start to see what are the new opportunities. This idea of multi-region is one that's been born from looking at our customers and what they ultimately want to do. So we, we sort of follow those signals and those suggest the avenues by which we can further improve the database. And I think it's, it's a really important thought experiment and illuminating to have a good idea of where you think the industry is going and whether something like multi-region is going to be something that goes from a niche requirement to a mainstream requirement. And that is, what do the big players do? Like, think about Google when they launch something or Facebook when they launch something or Amazon when they launch something or Apple when they launch something. All of these companies are dealing with the fact that users are all over the world. And they spend enormous amounts of resources in order to achieve those kinds of architectures. And why do they do it? Well, because it's a very superior user experience and they can do it. Now, if you're a Fortune 500 company, you might have lots of resources, but do you have the same kinds of engineers that Google hires? Probably not. Uh, But you would probably like to start doing some of the things Mm -hmm. that Google's doing for the exact same reason Google's doing them. So how do you go from uh, an R&D capability that's much more focused on your lines of business and not just general cloud infrastructure to an organization that uses the best sort of cloud infrastructure available in terms of -of state-of-the-art 
but also continue to just focus on your lines of business, building financial services products, your bank, whatever. You don't want to become Google. It's just not, it's not in the cards, right? So that's where Cockroach can help bridge the gap. And that's really why we're extending the database in these directions. It's kind of, how do we not just bring to Fortune 500, but bring to every new startup so that they can build the way Google builds? Because you know, Google spends, let's say, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars in, the, in these directions on uh, R&D. And then, of course, on all the maintenance of that, in order to improve their business, it stands to reason that if you can make that accessible mm-hmm. and inexpensive enough, especially with things like serverless, where you really can make the price uh, very uh, proportional to the utilization, then you can bring what is currently a very luxury niche capability into the mainstream and, and really uh, help gain a lot of market share because you're allowing your users to do what the big dogs do, right? Which I think everyone eventually will do. One of the sort of things we've learned about databases recently is is it's not always in one's place, right? You talk about consensus-based replication, the sort of co-located databases, and you also talk about multi-region. So I assume you do some sort of sharding yeah. as well. Yes, I mean, sharding is a, a critical part of, of how Cockroach achieves you know, virtually everything it does do. And there's some interesting nuance here, right? Uh, you know, we're often compared, especially when you're just starting off, if you say, hey, if I need a cockroach database cluster, or I could just keep using Aurora or, you know, RDS or just, you know, my own, I'm going to manage my own Postgres or MySQL instance. You know, the, the comparison on those things is, is really apples and oranges. We definitely do see that when you want the capabilities that Cockroach brings to market, like it can get very, very, very large, right? It can go multi-region. It is right. balancing your data across availability zones or regions. In order to do that, you need to think about sharding, you know, at, at a very fundamental level. It's, it's integral to the whole architecture of the database. That has a cost. It puts us in a, in a situation where we have to find interesting ways to appeal to the new starts, the companies that don't have massive data scale yet aren't trying to really embrace a global customer base, even though they want both of those things to be true in the future. Like Cockroach, you have to pay a cost up front in order to, to lock in an architecture that can scale to mm-hmm. the big leagues, right? So there, there is a, you know, an interesting sort of process by which you bootstrap that, where you really want to get ubiquity, not just at the high end where people very clearly see why they need Cockroach, but also at the low end, so it's actually easier and hopefully less expensive to start with Cockroach. And that's really where we're going with serverless. So we, we really want that to appeal to everyone. Now, the, the sharding stuff is, it's a cost we pay, but it is what unlocks all of that capability. I wanted to kind of touch on the fact that I think based off of this conversation, it's pretty clear to like anyone listening that you're very knowledgeable about about databases and probably technology and software in general. And it seems like I heard you mention earlier or allude to this earlier that you went from being more engineering focused to now being in a role as a CEO, which probably means that you're not as hands on with coding and things like that. So I want to hear more about what that transition is like. Like I can see that you're still very passionate about databases and discussing like some of the more technological and like, yeah, technical sides of it. So, yeah, tell us about like what it's been like being a CEO and having to like step back from doing all that kind of stuff. Yeah, it's it's a work in progress, I'll say that. So I can <laughs> tell you, you know, how I'm going to end, but the evolution has been relatively gentle. Okay. There was a time where we didn't have customers, we were just trying to build a product, and that was actually several years in the beginning. 
it stretched on for a while because we're building a very difficult product to build and it took time. And during that stretch, I was both the CEO, but it was really CEO of an R&D organization. And I was also <laughs> developing quite a bit. And I loved that. And eventually, though, in, in fact, our head of people, our chief people officer, was a friend from Google and has been with us since the beginning at Cockroach. She told me, like, Spencer, stop programming. <laughs> so eventually it got to the point where I knew I shouldn't be either because, you know, it was just too distracting. Because, you know, when you're programming, you can put a fundamentally endless number of hours into it. You're never going to be finished. There's always something cool to keep doing and some sort of, I, I've just become a real perfectionist when I'm coding. The problem is that the, the duties of a CEO involve lots of meetings and a lot of things that are scheduled. And as that workload increased, trying to context switch between the sort of endless input I could put into the programming process and these very regimented meetings where I had a context switch between all kinds of different things. It kind of made me a little bit sour, I'll be honest. You know, I'd, I'd sit in a meeting and I'd, I'd just been coding. My head was totally in the coding space. And I'd you know, think to myself, what am I doing in this meeting? This meeting is not very important. And I'd just be thinking the whole time about the coding. And, you know, at some point, that became untenable. So, you know, it was a gradual process and I, I, I let go of the coding slowly, but it was interesting. Uh, one of the last things I did in the code base was pretty crucial. I mean, we, we still are kind of struggling with the problem and I, I thought I did a decent job of solving it. But, you know, the engineering organization told me, we're not going to take your code right now because nobody, it's really complicated. Nobody knows what you did and like, we can't support it. It's not well tested. And that was the sign to me, like, okay, well, you know, I'm not actually helping anymore here. I need, I need to actually focus <laughs> on what my, my real job is. And, you know, since then, I've really grown accustomed to the new set of challenges, which has been, it's been good for me. You know, the C, being a CEO is it's a lot of things. It's very different from being a programmer, but in some ways, it is similar. And you can find the same kind of challenges, which is how do you build a, a big, complex system that works together where you have to debug things continuously. And um, you're ultimately going for you know, performance and efficiency and elegance and you know something that's functional fundamentally. Yeah, that makes sense in my head. I want to know too, do you still, do you ever have chances to like code maybe like outside, like not on the actual code base, but like little side projects or something like that? <laughs> I, I can tell that you still really enjoy it. So I was wondering if you ever get the time to like do it on maybe like a hobby basis. I sometimes do. The last Good. thing I did was I, I felt people were spending too much time in meetings. So I went, went <laughs> and wrote this thing that went in and, and, and analyzed, you know, how much time and how it was happening based on different cohorts of employees and like what their, their responsibilities were. And actually I found out that people weren't spending too much time in meetings. So it was, it was, it was my, it was my intuition. They were, and I was wrong, but it was good to be able to actually show that. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. That's good to hear. I kind of wanted to discuss where you see cockroach labs like going and evolving in the future. It's a good question. A lot of people have suggested like, Oh, you know what? You're, you're doing a serverless database. Perhaps you should also be doing, uh, serverless execution, you know, maybe even put it in the database. Like think of it as um, stored procedures, if you know what those are, but reimagined for the world of the global public cloud. So these distributed cloud data functions that are very close to the data. And hey, if you've got multi-region, you need to run the execution logic next to the data. Nobody knows where the data is better than the database. So you know what? And then there's, hey, we should do a stronger analytics capability in Cockroach so that it can compete with Snowflake. And uh, and by the way, Snowflake's building something that, you know, is, is encroaching on the more operational database side. I mean, all of these are possibilities for the future. 
you're expanding the scope of what your your initial product does in order to just create a larger adjustable market for your, your increasingly large suite of products. But I will just say this. The relational database market is so big and so challenging, but so rewarding if you can crack into it properly that I still think we have our work cut out for us. So right now, we're remaining very focused on just building the right next generation operational database is kind of how we think of ourselves. So, you know, that's distinct from something like Snowflake or Data Databricks. It's really about like, where do you store all of your metadata for your operational use cases? Every single product, uh, every order, every line item, you know, all of that sort of metadata that describes the reality of a business. That's really what we want to become the best at. And if we are the best at that and we win more than our fair share of the market, you know, the sky's the limit on that product alone just because of it's the largest market in software. And it's growing at 17% compound annual. So in 10 years, it will have gone from about $65 billion, uh, TAM, to a quarter of a trillion. And so that's just, uh, that's enormous, right? So what we want to do is is find our slice of that. And probably it's going to be the world's really big, fast-growing companies that use cockroach, because that's really what we're we're suited to support. And when we think about the new starts, all of those you know companies that definitely aren't at that crazy level of scale yet, we want to find the ones that will be at that crazy level of skill. And so it, you know, our job isn't to say cockroach is the database for everyone, every developer that's building anything. That's just too wide an audience, and it doesn't necessarily speak to what we're best at. You know, what we try to say is, okay, it was definitely the, the database for the most aggressive, fast-growing, massively scaled global businesses out there today. But also, how do we find the, the folks that are trying to build those kinds of businesses as well and, and care about our differentiators from the perspective of this is our ambition. This is what we need to accomplish. We, we should start with Cockroach because we realize that it's easy enough right now. And that's kind of part of what we're, we're building with serverless. And it's completely justified in terms of what we're going to get out of it as we succeed. So my, my last question, you talked about moving into spaces with big market potential, but also like a very sort of mature market. Do you feel like that's that's a big risk to jump in there? Or is it more of a risk to just kind of stay with the thing that works? That's a really good question. I don't know the answer. <laughs> I'm sure it's a big risk, but it's also a big risk to create your own new product category, right? Sure. As in you have to you have to stake it out, you have to convince people that it makes sense, you have to educate everyone. Mm-hmm. And often what happens when you're generating a completely new idea is that every new customer you get is like, this is cool. But I need this and this and oh, we thought about this thing and right. so you get a big customer and they start getting becoming the tail that wags the dog. Right. We have an interesting alternative to that, which is it's a SQL database, right? So SQL is a standard that's existed for quite some time. When we have a customer that asks us for something, it's typically something that a lot of other customers want. So that part's simpler, and it's a huge, huge, huge market that essentially powers every new thing that's being built. So all of the use cases that are going to be built in the next 10 years will exceed every single legacy use case ever built. That's just how fast things are growing in the ecosystem. All of those will have a relational database. So when you think about breaking into the market, it's not so much, oh, we're going to take away things that are running on Oracle and mm-hmm. they're going to migrate to Cockroach. That happens, but that's not the business, right? The business is, how do you win all the new things? You know, folks, as they're building new things within an organization that has many patterns they've used in the past, all the way back to 
mainframes or client server, you know, all these things that exist in the 90s and the 80s. Well, they've also embraced every other paradigm along the way. All those things exist. What we want to do is we want to win for the, the new platforms, the new paradigms that, that are being uh, operated on. So, you know, from that perspective, I think it's not necessarily a big risk to enter a market that has a lot of competition. As long as you feel that you have differentiation in ways that's going to unlock a reasonable portion of that addressable market. GIMP was, it's something I still use today. So I'm curious, you know, how did that come about for you? Actually, I'll mention that it wasn't just me that wrote GIMP as an original author. It was also Peter Mattis, who's one of the co-founders at Cockroach. And he's who recruited me to Google when I was there. And we were both there for 10 years. And then we did Viewfinder, our startup after Google, and we went to Square together. We were roommates at Berkeley. So we actually decided to write the GIMP because this was 1992, 93. I guess I met him in 93. You know, we had both arrived at Berkeley kind of from Mac and Windows backgrounds, because that's what you had. And all of a sudden we had these HP workstations and Sun workstations and, <laughs> and SGI workstations. If people remember that company. Yeah. Uh, and big Solaris boxes. Yeah. And we looked at these things and we were incredibly impressed. I was coming from Windows, so I think the gap was truly enormous. And then we saw open source. And that was, I mean like Emacs and GCC and I couldn't believe because I remember using Turbo Pascal and it was all closed source and it was so painful and I didn't have money to buy the things. We were trying to pirate the software, you know, and you didn't have the manual. So you, it was, it was, yeah, you know, you know, let's say that it's 30 years ago. So I'll probably be forgiven, but the statute of limitations is expired. Yeah, something like that. But, you know, then you saw the power of GCC and how many different platforms it compiled for. And it was all open and you could just dig into the code. And it's just an X term worked better than anything I'd ever seen before. So that was inspirational. And both of us, I mentioned my huge passion and was true for Peter as well, was graphics when we were at Berkeley. And the problem with that uh, open source, let's call it Unix and Linux and FreeBSD and you know, all of the commercial operating systems that were Unix-based, those all had a pretty weak, I guess, suite of applications that were that were really for graphics professionals. You, you could get Photoshop on Solaris. But, you know, again, it was way out of our, our price range. And there was XV for viewing images. There was XPaint, where you could do like pixel by pixel, like painting. And <laughs> compared right. to Photoshop, it was a it was a pretty wretched, you know, situation. So that's that's really why we decided on the GIMP. I remember we sat down and wrote some manifesto. Originally, the GIMP was going to be like really kind of command line based. You know, you could just run filters, you could send images. Like you know, it's kind of like those net PBM. I can't remember what they're even called, but there, there were sort of more Unix filter based uh, things that you could just do on the command line to do image processing, and that was part of our inspiration. But as you probably are aware, we went much more into the GUI. Route. And in fact, Peter wrote a GUI because he was so tired of using Motif, which is what we started using, which is a sort of more of a, a commercial and also some sort of open sourcey consortium type thing. But it didn't work very well. So Peter wrote GTK, which I think is still in use in a number of different developer platforms and things like that. So it was it was really scratching our own itch. And I've found that over my entire career, if that's what you can do, you're in you at least have a leg up, right? Because you understand the customer's perspective because you are a customer. Right, solve your own problems. 
Exactly. I'm glad in solving your own problem, you solved mine too. Uh, <laughs> it's always good to hear that, even even this many years after. It, uh, it's part of why we decided to build Cockroach. We just felt like, you know what, this is going to be useful. Let's do it so that everyone can use it in open source. And the company kind of came after the project by quite some time. And we didn't really realize it would be a company until we got into it. As we do uh, in many of these episodes, I'm going to shout out a Lifeboat Badge winner, somebody who answered a score of 20 or more to a question of negative three or less that goes on to receive a score of three or more, somebody saving a question from the dustbin of history. And today's badge, awarded two days ago, goes to Hughes M for multiple key pointing to single value in Redis cache with Java. So if you're wondering how to uh, get multiple keys in Redis with Java, another good database question, uh, check it out. We'll put it in the show notes. I'm Ryan Donovan. I edit the blog here at Stack Overflow. You can find me on Twitter at rthordonovan. And if you have an idea for a blog post, please email me at pitches at stackoverflow.com. My name is Ciora Ford, and I'm a developer advocate at Auth0. You can find me on Twitter. My username there is Ciorio. That's C-E-E-O-R-E-O underscore. Spencer, tell them uh, who you are, where you can be found. Well, uh, our Twitter handle is CockroachDB, at CockroachDB. Of course, the webpage is the, the place to start. You can start on serverless for free, which is, uh, I think, a great resource for any developer out there. And uh, yeah, if you want to reach out to me directly, it's Spencer at CockroachLabs.com. All right. Well, thank you for listening. Uh, Like, subscribe, all that really helps. And uh, we'll talk to you next time. Bye, everyone.